1: Welcome to the 29th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, September 6, 2018. This is April No, news edition to the WLRN team and radical feminists from the woods in Northern Ontario. When I'm not taking myself so seriously, ruminating about my part in the resistance, I'm playing with my dogs or hiking in the deep forest. I bring with me a background in environmental science, and I've got nearly 10 years' experience as a frontline shelter worker at a women's crisis center, providing supportive options to women fleeing abuse, be it spiritual, emotional, physical, sexual, and or economic. This past Monday was Labor Day in the United States, a federal holiday created to celebrate arguably socialist ideas of regulation in the workplace. Regulations meant to legislate not only safety, but also humanity and equity in labor. And so this month, we're talking about women in the labor movement. In today's podcast, WLRN speaks with women who promote the radical idea that women's work powers the world and that labor policies and regulations are pushed by a labor movement that is largely made up of women. Our first interview is with Professor Stephanie Luce of City University of New York, Ms. Luce is a professor of labor studies and sociology, and will talk about the particular struggles women face in the workplace, in addition to the complexities and intersections of oppression facing all workers under a capitalist system. Our second interview segment, Andrea Narbit, a Marxist from Atlanta, GA, shares her ideas with Sigmet Shiawa. We close out today's edition with Sikmet's commentary on women's necessary and exploited part in capitalism, and its faithful partner patriarchy. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, Heres de Mayante, with women's news from around the globe.
2: A protest march of women in Huelva in southern Spain brought to light the rampant sexual harassment and abuse faced by migrant women working in the farming sector in not only Spain, but also in Italy and Morocco. A later survey revealed that the women who work under difficult conditions have long work days and earn less than 30 euros per day. They themselves describe the situation as hell and as a nightmare. These women are economically exploited, often do not know the language of the place they are in and often get employed under illegal contracts. As a result, it becomes easy for the men who they work for to blackmail, harass and abuse the women. The survey has also revealed a very high rate of abortions during harvest season among migrant women. It is hard for the women to seek justice because they do not have access to reporting mechanisms. In spite of this, women are fighting back. In May, 10 women from Morocco filed a complaint in Spain. The defense of extreme intoxication in sexual assault cases is valid again in Ontario after a judge ruled that the federal law removing its validity goes against the constitutional right of the accused to be presumed innocent. The ruling was made during the trial of Cameron McCraw, who acknowledged in a court document that he had had sexual intercourse with the complainant, but said he had not intended to do so as he was under the influence of alcohol, marijuana, and a date rape trial. A 900-page grand jury report published earlier this month revealed that almost 300 priests of the Roman Catholic Church in Pennsylvania were guilty of molesting, abusing, and raping around 1,000 children. The reports include cases of oral, vaginal, and anal rape of girls and boys, filming of child pornography, and blackmailing. Much of the information on the report was gathered from church records, showing how church officials were guilty of covering up the crimes. For instance, one of the priests who quit after complaints of him sexually abusing children was given a glowing recommendation from the church and went on to work at Disney. While two priests have been charged over the report, most will not face any consequences because too much time has passed since they committed these crimes. Stronger hate speech laws were passed in New South Wales this month, which make it a crime to publicly threaten or incite violence towards another person or group on the basis of race, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, intersex status, and HIV or AIDS status. It is unlikely that this law will provide any protection to women from misogynist hate speech as women are not even mentioned as a protected class of people by these laws. Earlier this month, a Texas doctor, found guilty of raping a sedated patient, was charged with zero jail time and only 10 years of probation. The rape occurred in 2013 when Dr. Sheik was working as an internal medicine resident at Houston's Ben Hospital. The victim, identified as Laura, was undergoing treatment for asthma and was under sedatus when he began to grope her. Too weak to do anything, she pressed the room's call button, but it had already been unplugged. The rapist admitted to having sex with her but said that it was consensual. A jury found him guilty of rape but recommended a sentence of 10-year probation rather than prison time. The judge had no option but to take their recommendations. Earlier this month, in Pakistan's Gilgit-Baltistan area, 12 girls' schools were burned by unidentified men in coordinated attacks. Following the attacks, local residents staged a protest at Siddiqui Akbar Chowk demanding the arrest of culprits and seeking safety for educational institutions which are often targeted by the militants. Girls' education in Pakistan has been particularly at risk because of the Taliban and other militant groups according to a 2017 report by the Human Rights Watch. The Hate Crime Unit of the Calgary Police is currently investigating the assault of a lesbian couple that took place last week. Daniel Langtot and her girlfriend were holding hands while crossing the street when a group of people approached them, made a sexual comment about them and continued to laugh at them. Langtot reported by saying, nice man bun. The group continued to verbally berate them and as things got out of control, a man hit Langtot in the face and she fell down. I feel sorry that they're going to get a lot of bad karma coming their way because they chose to do something really stupid and insensitive, said Langtot. The U.S. Department of Education is set to issue a new set of policies addressing campus sexual assault that have come under the radar for privileging the rights of the accused over those of the survivor. The police significantly narrows down the definition of sexual harassment from what was earlier unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature to unwelcome conduct on the basis of sex that is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it denies a person access to the school's education program or activity. Universities will now only deal with cases that happen within the boundaries of the university's property or at university-facilitated events. Further, the new policy would allow survivors to be cross-examined by alleged perpetrators and would raise the evidentiary standard to that of civil cases. Linda Bellos, a veteran radical feminist and member of the Labour Party, is facing private prosecution by transgender activist Juliana Kendall under Section 5 of the Public Order Act. Last year, at a feminist gathering held in New York, Bellos was talking about the assault of radical feminist Maria McLaughlin by trans activist Tara Wolf in Hyde Park when she said, quote, If any one of those bastards comes near me, I will take off my glasses and thump them. I'm quite prepared to threaten violence because it seems to me politically what they are seeking to do is piss on women. She was interviewed under caution after she was reported to the police and the officers have decided to not press charges. Green Party politician Amy Chaloner, a trans-identified male, has stepped down from the party's leadership elections after it was found that his father David Chaloner, who was his election agent, was charged with child rape. David's horrific crimes included false imprisonment, gross indecency, assault by penetration, assault causing actual bodily harm, making indecent images of children by downloading them and possessing prohibited images. The former Green Party member kept a 10-year-old victim in an attic and would dress in a nappy and an adult-sized baby costume while raping his victim. Chaloner lived with his father in a house in Coventry and chose to have his father be his election agent even after the trial date was set. The Green Party has launched an inquiry on how David was allowed to be his election agent 18 months after he was charged with raping and torturing a child. Amy Chaloner has been suspended from the party. Chaloner denies that his decision to be transgender is related to being aware of his father's crime, stating, I am incredibly sad and angry that my own very personal decision to transition is being linked to my father's behaviour. Recently, the results of a six-year-old survey were found by Abigail Echo Hawk the director of the Urban Indian Health Institute, which revealed that 94% of the 148 women interviewed, all of whom identified as American Indian or Alaska Native, had been raped or were coerced into sex at least once in their lives. Echo Hawk said the report was especially significant because it is the first report on sexual violence focused exclusively on Native women living in an urban setting and also addresses factors like historical trauma. A community meeting was held by the Health Institute earlier this month, which was the first of many that will be held to discuss the issue. In South Korea, after a wave of protests against pipecam pornography revealed the misogyny of the judicial system, the police are now seeking to arrest the operator of a feminist website, Wumad, The website disseminated nude pictures of a male model in protest of the sexism of spy cam pornography. While barely any men have been arrested for the same crimes, authorities have taken women's case very seriously. Feminist groups released a petition against the bias shown by the police saying hate speech has always been more severe on sites operated by men, but authorities have never considered this a problem. If this is not a cause of selective justice and misogyny, then what is? Earlier this month, the Argentinian Senate rejected a bill to legalize abortion in the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. The lower house had passed the bill, the president had said that he would sign it, and polls had shown a 60% public interest for the bill. However, according to feminist activists, the approval of the bill was prevented by pressure from the Catholic Church. Pope Francis, hailed as a progressive, remained headstrong on refusing women's autonomy. According to the Clarion newspaper, he personally requested anti-abortion legislators to lobby their Senate colleagues to reject the bill. As senators debated the bill for 15 hours and hundreds of thousands of women stood vigil outside the Congress building as the votes were counted, the church held a mass for life at the Buenos Aires Cathedral. A few weeks ago, the Pope likened abortion to the eugenics program of the Nazi era. Currently, abortion is legal in Argentina only in cases of rape or in cases of danger to the mother's life. The Glasgow Rape Crisis Centre for Women and Girls recently said that it was forced to shut down its face-to-face support services because of a loss in funding. The funding cut came through an organization called Children in Need which said that the centre did not do enough for men and boys. Earlier this week in India, Dr Sudha Bharatwaj, a well-known tribal rights activist, was among the many democratic rights activists who were raided and arrested without trial for having quote Maoist links and falsely implicated as terrorists. Bharatwaj was born to distinguished economic parents in Massachusetts as an American citizen and formally gave up her citizenship to live in India, where she chose to live in Chhattisgarh and work for the welfare of iron ore workers and tribal people. She lives in a worker slum, is a mother to an adopted Chhattisgarh daughter and practices public interest law. Arrested with absolutely no evidence and criminalized for being critical of the state, her arrest has been seen as an extremely dangerous attack on democratic rights. Once was a union
3: maid who never was afraid Of the goons and the ginks and the company finks And the deputy sheriffs who made the raid She went to the union hall When the meeting it was called And when those company boys came round She always stood around No, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union always get her way. When they ask for higher pay, she'd show her card to the National Guard and this is what she'd say. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the Union. I'm sticking to the Union. I'm sticking to the Union. union. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the Union. I'm sticking to the Union union. till the day I die. We're not just the ladies we will fight for equal pay And we will have our say We're workers to the same as you And fight the union way Oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union Oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union Till the day I die
4: That was the New Harmony Sisterhood Band with their song, Union Made. Our first interview today is with Stephanie Luce, Professor of Labor Studies at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, and a Professor of Sociology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She received her B.A. at the University of California, Davis, and both her Ph.D. in Sociology and her M.A. in Industrial Relations from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Best known for her research on living wage campaigns and movements, she is the author of Fighting for a Living Wage and co-author of The Living Wage, Building a Fair Economy and The Measure of Fairness. Her current research focuses on globalization and labor standards, labor community coalitions and regional labor markets. Her most recent book is Labor Movements, Global Perspectives. You can read her work at stephanelouse.net. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-L-U-C-E dot net. Thistle begins the interview by asking Professor Luce about her career and how she got interested in labor studies. It turns out that Professor Luce, in her youth, was hired to be an umpire for her softball league and discovered that all of the other umpires who were boys were getting paid more than she was.
5: Welcome, Stephanie, to WLRN. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you just tell us a little bit about your career and what you have focused on?
6: Sure. Yeah. Actually, and I could tell you how I even got started in this uh, area, which is my very first job. Um, When I was about 13 years old, I, I played softball and I was hired as an umpire in the softball league, and I soon realized I was being paid less than all the other umpires. They were all boys. I was the only girl. Um, and so I complained about that, and the uh, head of the league said, oh, we thought you were a nice girl. So they um, not only didn't raise my wage, but they kind of shamed me for even protesting about it. So uh, that kind of um, sparked off an interest in gender and labor issues that has been with me um, since that time. And I've been both in terms of activist work and scholarly work, you know, really interested in, in uh, work in general and then labor unions, you know, labor movements, as social movements, and a lot around low-wage work, um, and increasingly I've been doing that internationally, so a lot of the low-wage worker campaigns internationally um, tend to be heavily dominated by women, a lot of um, women in uh, garment industries, uh, domestic work, other areas, so certainly men do low-wage work too, but... Um, the, the issues of, you know, gender oppression and exploitation in the workplace uh, heavily overlap, obviously with, um, you know, race and nationalist issues as well. But um, so there's, that's some in the background that's, uh, you know, in terms of my activist interests as well as scholarly interests.
5: So what is it that women earn to every dollar that men earn for equivalent work in the United States in this year, 2018. Do you know that?
6: Um, I believe that the number is now about 77 cents, but I don't. It changes uh, slightly, uh, you know, and the gender pay gap depends. You know, people will say, well, you know, you have to control for certain variables. You have to look at people with the same level of education, the same industry. And it's true that the gender wage gap does shrink if if you just compare, like, uh, to like if you just say, okay, check all college-educated people in this certain industry. However, no matter how you address, you still end up with some form of gender wage gap. You still find that women earn a lower salary than men on average. Um, and so, you know, some people say, well, that's um, you know, it's not necessarily discrimination. Some of that might be that women themselves make choices about their work. Certainly, women are more likely to take time off from their careers if they have children. We know certainly women are less likely to negotiate on their own behalf. They aren't as maybe likely to demand a higher wage uh, or they'll leave the job, for example. So there's other factors that also play into women getting a low wage. So some of it is certainly about straight old, old old-fashioned discrimination. Some of it is about the kind of cultural expectations for women Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what kinds of work they go into. And, you know, some of it is about um, the other structures of support in society that make women more likely to be responsible for care work. um, And so then they maybe don't have the same kind of occupational choices that men do.
5: Mm -hmm. And it kind of begs the question of what is women's work, too, because you, you talk about women leaving their jobs in order to bear children, that that's kind of a common thing that happens. And Does our society view the bearing and raising of children as as work, as legitimate work?
6: Yes, that's an excellent point. Which is even the definition of what counts as work in our culture uh, is you know is is complicated. Um, You know, certainly capitalism requires the work that's done in the paid workforce to happen. But in order for people to even show up for work, they need to be clothed and fed and and provided for in terms of health and so forth. And we need people to reproduce. They, uh, capitalism can survive if there wasn't a future labor force and a future consumer body. So it requires that we reproduce the human race and it requires that those workers are fed and sustained and can show up for work and do the work. But we have this false divide between what is so-called productive labor um, which happens inside the, the doors of the Employers firm and reproductive labor, which is, you know, having children and, and taking care of children and taking care of, um, sick people and elderly people. So many, uh, feminists and feminist economists have talked about the need to value women's work, um, not just to, you know, raise it up in, you know, respect it for the, the skilled work that it is, but also even to talk about the economics of that, which is, you know what would be our gross domestic product actually if we actually began to consider all of that work um, as you know counting in um, in our economy?
5: What kind of progress has been made? Because that statistic that you just laid on me—it seems like it's been hovering around that amount ever since I can remember in the 1970s when I was growing up. It, it was around 75 cents to the dollar. What, have, have have there been any changes? Like, are we headed in a direction where women's work and labor is going to be valued and we'll, we'll have our rightful place in society? Um, well, you know, what's interesting is there has been
6: some narrowing of the gap. Um, you know, I think, actually, you know, today it's probably more like 80 cents on average, but um, if you just take white women to white men, that gap is more narrow. But um, sadly, the gap has increased between women. So we're seeing racial uh, gaps widening, uh, whereas in some places, the gender gap is shrinking. So overall, it's, it's a complicated story to talk about where we've seen gains and losses. Many people have, you know, suggested that affirmative action as a policy has had its most success in terms of Advancing um, white women in terms of white women having more access to things like you know my job I, I don't know if I'd be a professor if it wasn't for you know I'm am a white woman and uh, affirmative action has certainly opened spaces um, for me but it it hasn't had the same impact for people of color so you know I think when we think about successes we've seen some pretty major changes for some groups of women, for, co- for women to enter college and then to enter certain occupations 30 and 40 years ago that were closed to women almost entirely. So, you know, doctors, lawyers, uh, professors, some of these just weren't on the table for women 34 years ago. However, the other fact of this is some of the wage gap has closed because the average wage for men has stagnated or in some cases even fallen. So it's not that we just want the wage gap to close because that's important, but we want the entire, you know, working class to be lifted, and that includes white men in the working class and it includes uh, black women and Latino women. So I think for me the challenge is how do you balance, you know, a feminist analysis that focuses on women's work but also in the context of a working class analysis that understands the complexities and divisions within the working class and looks for solutions that unite
5: rather than divide. Yes, absolutely. Uh, There are so many divisions uh, amongst women, as you alluded to, based on education level, class, race, and sometimes it just feels like there aren't any solutions, really. It's just this mixed-up society that we've all been born into, and um, no progress is really being made. And we end up fighting with each other and and being divided. Um, in, In your research and your studies, have you found any pockets of wisdom about people who are actually able to focus in on that unity and overcoming those divides in our society?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think just, you know, throughout history, we've had pretty, you know, inspirational examples of you know, labor movements and feminist movements that have found ways to bridge the divide. I think, you know, even in the current moment, I'm very motivated by the Fight for 15 movement and the alliances with the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that even though that's a movement that initially started out as a campaign among fast food workers, um, it really never was just a very narrow campaign. It was a campaign saying, you know, we are making these demands for fast food workers, but that's meant as a way to lift up uh, labor and working conditions for all workers. Um, and so soon that spread to, you know, we saw childcare workers and uh, airport workers and discount store workers, you know, all being part of that, adjunct uh, professors, all being part of that movement that was saying, you know, hey, we don't want to be treated as you know, we want we want to be treated as human beings. We want to be treated with respect. Um, and making the, the demand that um, our worth in society is not determined by what our employer says our worth is or our relationship to the employer's profit, but that all humans have dignity and worth. And that, um, you know, if you're an employer who can't uh, afford to pay a living wage, perhaps you don't even have the right to have a business. You know, a business model can't rest on paying workers' poverty wages. Um, So I think that what's been great about that movement. It it hasn't had a specifically, uh, you know, explicit feminist analysis. It's not saying this is only about women's work, um, but by its claims, it's also saying that we need to treat all people with respect. Um, And the reality is, you know, the majority of low-wage workers are, again, women and people of color. So these low-wage campaigns um, highlight general labor exportation, but they have a disproportionate impact on women and people of color.
5: What kind of on-the-ground type of activism are you engaged with right now? Well, unfortunately,
6: not as much as I'd like to be. Uh, in, uh, you know, I'm active in my union, which is a faculty union here at CUNY, um, and, you know, one of the priorities for the campaign is to raise wages for adjuncts. Um, it's another example where, uh, you know, the low-wage work falls disproportionately on women and people of color and where, you know, historically some of the faculty unions were reluctant to advocate for adjunct and part-time workers and they felt like we want to, you know, keep ourselves separate. That's, that's a different job category. But others of us, you know, said, no, it are we're all in this together. We're all about preventing exploitation at the university, you know, whether that's adjunct labors or staff or librarians. We need to have united campaigns that kind of say the heart of the university is is the students, but also the faculty and staff that run this, and we won't be pitted against one another. Our Our interests are overlapping in having a well-funded university that's accessible and and treats all workers with, with uh, dignity and respect.
2: Sure,
5: but the way I learned about capitalism when I was studying sociology as an undergraduate is that it's not about fairness and just labor practices. It's about exploitation. It's about how to make money. So if, if that's what capitalism is about, how don't we have to abolish capitalism in order to get to a place where all laborers are going to be treated with dignity and respect?
6: Yeah, um, I, I agree with you. I think that it's tricky when we're we're fighting for $15 an hour wage or we're fighting for the right to form a union or fighting to end gender uh, discrimination in the workplace. In all of those cases, I think that We can fight for those reforms, and we can win them some of the time, but they won't be enough. You know, you can win a $15 an hour wage, but you still are vulnerable to being fired at any time. You still might not have health insurance. Um, It's certainly not going to solve poverty, and we're not going to solve poverty, and we're not going to solve unemployment under capitalism. And like you say, we're not going to um, solve labor exploitation. Even if we have high wages, at the end of the day, the system depends on the employer exploiting the worker uh, to to (laughs) earn a profit. So, so yeah, so that's the trick is how can we balance fighting for reforms in a way that is, yes, we want to win that higher wage, but that's not the end solution. The end solution is building The capacity of workers as a working class to take control over the economy, to make the decisions about how production is set up and what counts as work and how work is rewarded. Um, That yeah, that can only happen when workers are in charge of the uh, of the economy.
5: Yeah, and how difficult that is when we have this international system at this point. You know, how do workers take control of the economy, I mean, it has to start happening on the local level, I would assume. And do, do you have any examples of
6: that? Um, that's a hard question. I, Unfortunately, I don't have great examples. I mean, certainly we've seen a lot of growth in the worker co-op movement, you know, and, and workers have formed co-ops since the beginning of capitalism, you know, when particularly in times of recession or difficult times, workers turn to running their own businesses, We also know worker co-ops are more likely to sustain a recession or um, a downturn in the economy. So there are models of uh, worker cooperatives, um, but those aren't necessarily, you know, a solution in themselves. They're still trying to function within a capitalist system that is very difficult to sustain. You know, I think that there's a growing discussion about the ways in which capitalism is failing, even those who are advocates, you know, who want to save it, you know, they're worried about it because global economic growth has slowed um, significantly. Um, inequality is ins- unsustainable. With this kind of inequality, we don't have a working class that can even, you know, buy stuff to sustain the system. So even some of the advocates of neoliberal models or capitalist models have, have been alarmed at the situation of our global economy. But I think there's space for the discussion about alternatives, Certainly in the U.S., there's been growth in the democratic-socialists of America and conversations about capitalism and socialism. You know, finding more concrete examples of that is much more difficult. I think what it means is people need to be linking these campaigns that, yes, we're demanding a better minimum wage or we're demanding health care, but we're making those claims in the context of broader discussions about what economy we want to have. What's the whole point of work? You know, under capitalism, the point of work, it's structured around maximizing profit. That's the goal. And we want to have conversations about, hey, what about a world in which the point of work is to satisfy human need and to sustain the planet and to take Mm -hmm. care of one and each other? So, yeah, I think that's the direction we need to be going with our with our reform movements, our social movements, is to say we're demanding better conditions, but we're also demanding a different kind of economy.
5: Well, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our WLRM listeners who are largely radical feminists and lesbians? (laughs) Well,
6: um, I'd like to uh, just say, you know, I think right now is just a terrifying moment. It's globally, we're seeing the rise of right-wing movements that are uh, gaining uh, traction among people that seem like should be allies. And I think it's very easy to be demoralized and scared and depressed. On the other hand, there's so many examples of people who are resisting and fighting back. There's unusual alliances and spaces to form new relationships. So I think our challenge right now is to not let the demoralization and the pessimism take over, but to kind of get inspired in the opportunities for new conversations. And I think even though it's It feels like a time of retreat. I think it actually is a space for the biggest kinds of questions we can pose. You know, like I said, again, asking what's the point of uh, how we set up our society. Um, Let's just not talk about job creation. Let's talk about jobs and care work and structuring our lives. How do we want our daily lives to look? Do we want to cut back paid work hours so we have more time to take care of one another? Do we want to you know, call for a whole radical restructuring of communities and housing, uh, those kinds of questions. I think we need to take that space and really open up the conversation. And that also, you know, gets it beyond the same old tired debates that are alienating and boring and, and you know, like get stuck in this Democrat versus Republican. I don't think Democrat versus Republican is enough to answer these bigger questions. Know, we we need to dream big and talk about real alternatives
5: yeah well here in Madison one of the things that helps me make it through my day is working together with neighbors in community gardens as simple as that may sound it is an economy right because if you're growing your own food and getting to know your neighbors as you grow your own food there's some security in that you know or at least it, you're taking steps towards having a secure neighborhood, and that that can make a difference.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's both an economic activity because you are feeding yourselves and you're preparing, you know, for the future, um, and it's a, it's a social activity, as you say, because you're building relationships with um, with with people around you. So, yeah, I, I think there are plenty of ways for people to take action build their communities, and really most importantly, yeah, is building that neighbor-to-neighbor connection um, and not letting us be divided. That's what, you know, the right wing really wants to do is divide working people based on race, based on gender, uh, based on immigrant status. Like, we have to constantly um, work against that and say it's about solidarity, solidarity, solidarity.
0: So speak out, speak over, speak so I can hear you I want to know
6: In today's second interview, WLRN speaks with Marxist feminist Andrea Narbot. Ms. Narbot has played supportive roles in campaigns like Georgia Jobs for Justice, the Movement for People's Democracy, and she is currently involved in the re-founding of RE, W-R-E-E, Women for Racial
7: and Economic Equality. So how would you define Marxist feminism as opposed to radical feminism or even any other kind of feminism that's out there? Well,
8: Marxist feminism is an analysis that analyzes women within the capitalist framework and their position in society. And it's not necessarily the women's oppression is based on their biological sex, but it's actually based on their status within society, within class. So the violence between men and women, the low pay, this is all a byproduct, according to Marxist feminism, from the capitalist system. Not necessarily because they're women, because they're biological sex.
7: So how does Marxist feminism then view the project of women's liberation? How does Marxist feminism suggest that women improve their lives but also get free
8: i think this is the main
7: difference in
8: uh from marxist feminism to other feminisms the way to women's liberation is through dismantling the capitalist system otherwise it's just reform it's just a band-aid on the situation, or the position of women in society as, as, as it stands right now. But basically dismantling the capitalist system is how women will be liberated. Also, full participation in the workforce. Shared responsibilities of uh, caring for children and caring for the elderly and other things like that is how uh, women will be liberated.
7: Could you kind of, um, in layman's terms, explain how dismantling capitalism would ultimately address those issues too?
8: Well, dismantling capitalism will address violence against women by reducing the dependency of women economically on men. And that is one of the main components of capitalism and also patriarchy as well. Male supremacy, as much feminists as would rather say, that will reduce capitalism as it allows women to be dependent women and children to be dependent on men for their basic needs for survival Mm -hmm. and unless we do away with that and unless we can put in a system where women can be free to have their own economic needs taken care of they don't have to depend on an abusive partner, to they don't have to stay in a, in a relationship where they're being abused in order to survive. Unless we address that, there is no way that women will, able to, women will be able to be liberated from anything like that. And this needs to be on a cooperative level, on a on a societal level, not just individual. So that's how Marxist feminists suggest that women can be liberated in in a socialist or communist system.
7: What does the result of dismantling capitalism look like? What's the Marxist vision of what post-capitalist life is?
8: Yes. I do get asked that question a lot, and it's hard to answer on one level, but to put it simply, no, um, no state violence, you know, no, no state sanctioned violence against a group of people who are citizens of this country, uh, no overblown wars, like, jeez, how many wars do we have to be in, no paying thousands of dollars just to visit the ER if you have an issue. You know, you'd be able to get, manage health care. You'd be able to manage child care. You'd be able to manage elderly care. You wouldn't have to worry about depending on a man to choose you as his wife in order for you to worry about having a, a good life to be able to live comfortably on this planet we don't have a hierarchy of people because they have lighter skin than me. You know, that's the ideal. It sounds kind of like a utopia, but I think that we can get there. There's, there have been some experiments. There's been the Soviet Union. There's been Cuba. There's been the Latin American countries have attempted Socialist governments, and they all have been interrupted by outside forces and and also um, reactionary forces within their country, and that's something that we will have to address in some way, shape or form. So in that sense, there's no such thing as utopia. You know, ideally, yeah, these are the things that we, that I would love to see in a post-capitalist society. You don't have to worry about you know, simple things like maternity leave. <laughs> That's something we would take for granted in my ideal society.
7: So would you say that a truly Marxist or socialist or communist society would eliminate poverty? Yes, absolutely.
8: Poverty is the result of government policy and not necessarily a natural uh, state of being uh, on the planet. There's plenty of resources to go around. It's just that government policy dictates who gets more of those resources than the others. You asked me about women's liberation a while ago. And Marxism states that women's liberation will come through the responsibility of what women have now, their burdens as far as like the household work, everything that capitalism has women with, especially wives in the nuclear family model. The government or society, we would share all of that collectively, those burdens. And that will allow women to be equal to men and liberated and not have to be dependent on a husband if she doesn't need, if she chooses not to be married, but she has a child. She won't need a husband to draw insurance from or supplement her income or have to worry about getting quality child care. But all of these things that we have in America today, a lot of the social services that we have now, it's because of communists and socialists fighting back in the early 1900s for these things. People try to forget that or they want to sweep that to the rug or learn about the people that came before us and fought for our rights as workers. And We got some concessions out of their fight, but we got to continue the fight, especially as women because at the end of the day, Frederick Engels, who was Karl Marx's partner in his work, he wrote a book called Origin of the Famine. And in it, he talks about why he thinks women are oppressed and how they're oppressed in the capitalist framework and the bourgeois way, from the ruling class. And one of the things that really emphasizes is that the nuclear family model is very oppressive to women. Men, too, but oppressive to women in that the responsibility of society and the economic structure of capitalism rests within the nuclear family model. And that needs to be abolished and done away with. Not the nuclear family per se, not, you know, monogamous love or anything like that, having children. That doesn't need to be abolished, but the responsibility and the pressure that the nuclear family has to carry continue this capitalist system, it needs to be um, done away with. So I think that we really need to start educating the working class on how all of this affects us as individuals and how we collectively can start to fight against it and start to dismantle it. capitalism.
9: Early in the morning she rises The woman's work is never done And it's not because she doesn't try She's fighting a battle with no one on her side Well she rises up in the morning And she works till we pass us Woman better slow down Or she's gonna come down hard
0: listening to WLRN, brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's, Women's Liberation, Liberation Radio, Radio, Radio
5: News.
7: News. One of the hallmarks of liberal pseudo-feminism in the United States is the push to pay women the same wages as men. The usually quoted statistic here is that women make, on average, only 77 cents to a man's dollar for the same position in the same field. In reality, this is the stat for white women as compared to white men. Black and brown women make less than 77 cents if the sex-based wage gap exists. Some people deny that it does, claiming the criteria by which the gap is calculated ultimately doesn't take into account, mitigating factors that would explain a justified difference in wages between men and women. Whether the wage gap exists or not isn't the main point, as far as any worthwhile feminist analysis is concerned. What matters is the bigger picture of labor exploitation, wealth inequality, and the decaying system of capitalism itself. The capitalist system and male wealth depend on female labor, paid and unpaid. The richest and most powerful figures in any given economy have always been men. And in the US, those men are white and heterosexual almost without exception. The most glaring income gap exists not between men and women doing the same work, but between the overwhelming majority of workers and the richest men who own and control the economy. Fixing any wage gap that may exist between men and women will not solve the problem of the billionaire capitalist hoarding the money his workers generate for him, while they make barely enough to afford a comfortable life. Closing a pay gap between men and women will not eliminate poverty, which is a largely female condition. The liberal pseudo-feminist is more often than not supportive of capitalism, wanting to preserve or achieve her own class privilege within the capitalist system. That's why her petition for women earning equal wages to men rings so hollow to any radical or socialist or Marxist feminist. A poor or working-class woman who earns the same money as a poor or working-class man is still class oppressed, and she experiences class oppression with greater ramifications than her male counterpart because she is female. The only women in society who stand to benefit personally from equal pay within the current capitalist system are the ones who already have class privilege. The capitalist system is based on exploitation of the worker. The heterosexual domestic sphere runs on the exploitation of female labor. These two systems have long been symbiotically connected. Prior to the majority of women working for wages, their unpaid domestic labor made it possible for their husbands and sons and other male family members to participate in the capitalist system, while having their domestic and sexual needs met for free. Even when women don't work paid jobs, the richest male capitalists profit indirectly from their labor within heterosexual nuclear families. That said, a majority of women, particularly black and brown women, have always worked outside the home out of sheer necessity. Certainly in the 21st century, most of us work full-time or part-time throughout adulthood, even if married and raising children. In fact, it is the class-oppressed woman who has no choice but to work for money while also raising young children if she has them. The class privileged women can choose to depend entirely on a husband's income or pay another woman to handle most of the childcare while she works a job. White capitalist countries have always profited off the labor of black and brown women in other parts of the world. In the US, black female slaves spent centuries helping to build the country into a wealthy superpower while being raped, tortured, abused, and even murdered. American chattel slavery is the perfect example of what capitalism really is. A violent, immoral, gruesome, and irredeemable operation in which the bodies of the many are used and abused to profit the few. The 21st century version of this often happens out of the average American citizen's sight, in the form of poor people overseas slaving away in sweatshop-like conditions for next to no money, employed by U.S. corporations and their foreign partners. On our own soil, companies like Walmart and Amazon pay their workers as little as seven dollars to $11 an hour while raking in billions every year. Money their executives happily pocket while prohibiting employees from unionizing. These labor forces include a significant number of women, sometimes even a majority. Women who feel they have no choice but to work in these exploitative conditions because it's their only means of survival. Women make up a majority of the world's poor, and are poorer than men across racial lines, even in the U.S. This is by design, not coincidence. For most of history, men did not allow girls and women to be educated or to acquire skills they could transform into careers. They didn't even allow us to legally own money or property in our own names. Men have kept women and girls financially dependent on them since the beginning of time as a way to tightly control us and herd us into heterosexual marriage. To this day, the phenomenon of underage girls being forced into marriage with adult men worldwide is closely linked to prohibiting those girls from completing an education that could lead to financial independence. Poverty and financial struggle also serve to drive women and girls into prostitution, which used to be the only alternative to heterosexual marriage women had worldwide, and which continues to be a last resort for the poorest women and girls who can't rely on a father or husband to fund their most basic survival needs. Poverty makes women and girls significantly more vulnerable to men and more likely to attach themselves to a man simply in exchange for housing, food, and other necessities. In developed nations, women who have a choice about their lifestyle now sell out to men for money and class privilege in addition to heterosexual status. The most class privileged women almost always either marry into their wealth or inherit it from their father or both. It is a rare woman who comes by her wealth and class privilege through sheer independent labor, outside of heterosexuality, and without any class privilege inherited from birth. Even the ultra-wealthy female entertainers we might see as earning their own income ultimately succeed through obeying and appeasing the heterosexual men who have final say over their career trajectories. How else do you explain the glaring absence of dyke-looking lesbians in the upper echelons of the entertainment industry? Or the absolute blanket conformity to hardcore, pornified femininity and heterosexual posturing that all the hetero actresses and female musicians display without fail? Visibly lesbian women are still discriminated against in the workplace, potentially barred from higher-paying positions or from employment in general. In the United States, there are no legal anti-discrimination protections for lesbians in the workforce in 26 states, which means a lesbian can be fired from any job simply for being a lesbian. This is one modern method of herding women into compliance with femininity and heterosexuality. It's no coincidence so many lesbians spend their lives in the poor and working classes regardless of their intelligence and capabilities. Radical feminism has always and will always call for economic justice worldwide because the liberation of all females from male oppression depends on it. Women and girls need to be able to physically survive independently of men if they're ever going to have any power or freedom. We need to be able to meet our own basic physical needs without relying on a male's income and without having our wages depend on the whims of rich male capitalists. Instead of allowing classism to divide us, instead of falling for the con of individual wealth and class privilege, we need to have the strength to band together and fight for the downfall of capitalism, and in the meantime, for every single woman in the world to earn a living wage. Every woman and girl deserves to be independent, free, and comfortable. Every woman and girl deserves safe housing, health care, food, and clean water. And no woman or girl should have to pay men for those things with sex and obedience. Class-privileged women have a responsibility to the rest of the female population to work toward that world even if it means they one day no longer have access to obscene wealth. As feminists, we have to care more about women and girls than about social status and money. It's the only way any of us will ever be truly free.
5: That brings us to the end of WLRN's 29th edition podcast on women in the labor movement. Thanks so much to today's guests, Stephanie Luce and Andrea Narbot for their time and insight into how women in particular are affected by laboring in the modern world. As always, thank you, sisters, for supporting independent women's media. Until next time, this is WLRN's faithful graphic designer, Natasha, bidding you a fond adieu.
2: And this is the If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to WLRnewscontact at the Are you interested in joining our team at WLRN? We are looking for more women to conduct interviews, write articles, do editing, transcribing, research, and more. Go to the Volunteer for WLRN tab on our WordPress site to find instructions for how to apply. Until next time, keep fighting the good fight.
4: Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where we keep our followers up to date on the latest feminist content and women's headlines. Find our Facebook page and Tumblr blog, both titled Women's Liberation Radio News, and our Twitter, at RadFemRadio. You can also subscribe to our email newsletter from the homepage on our website, wlrnmedia.wordpress.com. I'm Julia. Thanks for staying tuned.
1: We are 100% volunteer-powered, independent, radical feminist radio, and we thank you for listening. This is April signing off from our September 6th 2018, 29th edition podcast dedicated to women in the labor movement.
0: If you love listening to our grassroots podcast every month, consider donating to WLRN by going to our website, wlrnmedia.wordpress.com and clicking on the donate button. While you're there, check out our merch tab for awesome posters, bumper stickers, t-shirts, and more. This is Thistle. Thanks for
7: listening. Our homemade, handcrafted podcasts are released the first Thursday of every month. Tune in Thursday, October 4th, for our 30th edition on Lesbian Feminism, featuring an interview with Professor Sheila Jeffries. This is Segment She-Owl, over and out.
6: And this is Jenna. Today's podcast featured music from the New Harmony Sisterhood Band and Tracy Chapman's song, Woman's Work. Your Women's Liberation Radio News Podcast is always produced in love and solidarity. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to
5: support women's independent media.
0: But how will we find a way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home? i yeah.